0: Welcome to the Teaching Ministry of Jubilee Church International. Jubilee is devoted to making disciples, winning the lost to Christ, building strong families, and taking the gospel to the nations. Open your Bibles and join us as the presence of the Holy Spirit helps us to grow a little deeper. Everything God's been speaking this year is in the context of discipleship, of not just being a disciple, but being a disciple who disciples disciples, amen? Because that's what it's really all about, is sharing the love of Christ and not just making converts. In fact, what we've often dumbed biblical discipleship down in the modern day church is simply conversion, making converts. And we've done a poor job at that because there are many people who sit in the church unconverted. And do you know why we would get to a place that we have entire massive churches full of people who are unconverted? Because we have failed at discipleship. We took discipleship when we just made it just simply about mere conversion. And somebody, you know, 30 people confess Christ, we're done. Chalk up, look at there. And we got into a numbers game. We got into a numbers game. Well, 500 people got saved in my crusade. Well, we had, you know, 300 commitments to Christ. Yeah, but what then? What then? How many of you are familiar with Dawson Trotman? the founder of the Navigators. Dawson was so driven by the numbers of getting people saved. In fact, he, his goal at one time when he, he, he began to form the Navigators, he, he said they purposed to get an entire uh, sh- uh, fisherman's village. He wanted the whole town to get saved. He wanted to be able to say that not a single person in that town did not know Jesus Christ. And they did. At at one point, there was not a single person in that town that had not made a profession of Christ. Amen? And that's amazing. But one day, he was traveling, and he picked up a hitchhiker. And he said, don't I know you? He said, yeah. He said, "Uh, you led me to Christ a couple years ago. Well, how's your life going now? Well, I'm a drug addict, I'm this, I'm that, I'm just, you know, I'm just a mess. I haven't done anything for Christ. I haven't walked, you know, I'm, I'm living the old lifestyle that I used to live. And he said he learned right then that it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough just to get people to confess Christ and then say they're good to go. But you got to teach them how to live it. You got to teach them how to live Christ. But it's inconvenient to do that because it's like cleaning fish. Right? If you catch them, you got to clean them. That's why you see a lot of these guys catch them and throw them back. (laughs) You can't do that in this walk. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, so many people come to church with a genuine desire to hear what we have to say, yet they are always going back home with the uncomfortable feeling that we are making it too difficult for them to come to Jesus. I've actually had people say, well, I tried Jesus. What do you mean you tried Jesus? You tried him like a new pair of shoes that pay less? Didn't like the way those fit, so try another pair. Don't like the way those fit, go somewhere else. What do you mean you try Jesus? You don't try Jesus. You die to Jesus. Amen? Well, I tried Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, my gosh, you know, I said that, that prayer with the preacher. And then the next thing I know, he wanted me to change my life. Wanted me to quit living in sin. Well, yeah. Yeah. Maybe he should have warned you of that before he asked you if you wanted to accept Christ. i never forget. It. I was in Mexico one time. And I mean, we had people coming to Christ. It was amazing. And then, you know, we connect them with the pastors and the churches there. But one young man, I went to pray for him and I said, well, you don't know, you want me to pray something for you? Oh, yes. Want well, God to bless me and heal me and fix my marriage, all these things. Okay, well, are you a Christian? No. Well, brother, in order to get the benefits of the kingdom, you've got to first know the king. <laughs> you've got to be a citizen of the kingdom and know the king. Would you like to accept Jesus Christ? He said, well, what does that mean? I said, that's a good question. It means you've got to die to self. You've got to give up your old life. you got to live the life of Christ. Come on, we don't just take Christ and put him in your life. You surrender your life and you live his life. And that means a lot of things are going to have to change in your life, right? Inside and out and all around you. Everything, God, God wants to turn everything upside down in your life means your morals are going to have to change. Your values are going to have to change. Your way of thinking's going to have to change. Your attitude, your words, everything's got to change. Would you like to accept Christ? No. We'll take him back. Maybe I explained it too well. <laughs> <laughs> now I explained it exactly the way Jesus did. When the rich young ruler came to him and said, "I've kept all the commandments, what must I do to follow you?" He said, "Give up everything." He said, "I can't do it." And so immediately when that man looked at me and said, "No, I, I, I choose not to accept Christ," I could hear the words of that rich young ruler, and I could feel what Jesus felt when he said, "I can't give up everything to follow you." I can imagine. What Jesus felt. I'll never forget, was in youth ministry and had a young man come up. And this young man was in his 20s. Pastor, I need you to pray. I need God to bless me with this job and bless me financially and bless me, bless me, bless me. And I need a word from the Lord. I said, okay, I got one. thus saith the Lord, quit smoking weed. Thus said the Lord, quit smoking weed. Because that's where all your money's going. <laughs> I ain't going to bless you, weed. I never forget my dad. My dad had somebody call me one day and said, Brother Johnny, you know, if I tithe off my. If I tithe off my business, well, God bless it. (laughs) They said, well, what's your business? He said, I grow my own marijuana (laughs) in the basement of my house. (laughs) No, God ain't going to bless that tithe, brother. Had a pastor call me one time, a pastor. Brother Marvin, I need you to pray, and I need a word from the Lord. I need some direction because. The Lord said he's going to bless me with enough to build a church. Oh, yeah? What did God say? He said, well, I got some money. And he told me if I go to the casino, he was going to show me which slot machine to put it in. And I said, brother, where did you get this money? Well, it's the church's money. No, brother, you're going to go to jail. What are you thinking? What can- How do we let this thinking creep in? Where's the wisdom of God in our theology? And I'll tell you why. Because we've turned Christianity into a Greek theology. It never was a Greek theology. It's the heart of a father who spoke to a people about how to live in a Hebrew tongue through Hebrew culture and a Hebrew mindset, and it's not about becoming a Jew, it's not even about understanding fully how to be a Hebrew, it's how to follow Jesus, it's how to follow Jesus. Now let me read what Bonhoeffer said again, so many come to church with a genuine desire to hear what we have to say, yet they're always going back home with uncomfortable feeling that we're making it too difficult them to come to Jesus. Is it that hard not to lie? I never forget when I was a youth pastor, I had a young man called him in a lie. I said, son, why do you lie to me? Why did you lie to me? He said, well, it was an accident. <laughs> an accident? An accident? You you don't accidentally lie. That's premeditated. i forget when we first adopted Jason. Every time he'd do something, I'd say, son, why did you hit your brother, or why did you do this, or why did you do that? He'd say, my brain told me to. <laughs> your brain told you to. Who taught you that? Well, that's what they taught me at school. I just need to tell my brain not to do that, but sometimes my brain tells me to do it. <laughs> well, son, I'm going to teach you another little lesson. It's divine design that you're, backside is connected to your brain. And so I'm going to help your brain out. <laughs> you know, in our Trail Life Boys ministry, we had a training session where we taught the boys about the importance of using the right tools for the right job. What I want to talk to you about this morning as we wrap up this series on making an impact is learning to use and have the right discipleship tools in your discipleship toolbox. Amen. So we taught the boys in this session that it you got to have the right tools to do the right job. Amen. Anybody here do construction or anything like that carpentry? Amen. A few. The right tool makes all the difference, doesn't it? And a professional, you'll notice, he has the, not only the right tools, he's got the good tools. He didn't get them all at Harbor Freight. (laughs) Not knocking Harbor Freight? I love Harbor Freight. I spend all day in there. But you got to pick and choose which ones are the good tools and which ones are not. You don't want one of them sledgehammers that the first time you use it, the head goes flying across the road. (laughs) The right tool for the right job. See, you wouldn't use a skill saw to cut down trees. And you'd not use a sledgehammer to build a birdhouse. And in discipleship, there's a similar principle. There are certain tools that a disciple must have in his toolbox to be an effective man or woman of God. And you might think, well, he's got to know Greek or Hebrew. Or he's got to, you know, he's got to have a... Strong's concordance in his toolbox, and he's got to have a, you know, strong, you know, public ability to pray and be articulate, and all, there's all kinds of things we tend to perceive need to be in our toolbox, but that's not the case. Through Jesus's process of building his disciples, we can find a few critical tools. All of those are good tools. But I want to show you the most essential tools you got to have. We see Jesus, in building his disciples, had some critical tools he used to build them into the disciples who would make an impact that would change the world forever. So I want to show you six life tools that you need in your discipleship toolbox this morning. The first one, you'll throw that first slide up there, is... Integrity. You've got to have integrity. You've got to start with integrity. Whatever your integrity was before you met Christ, it doesn't matter. When you come to Christ, you get a clean slate to start over again and rebuild the integrity of your life. The integrity of the Word of God. I see so many in ministry who lack integrity and they're having to always constantly defend and prop up and try to sustain their ministry because they've compromised the integrity. And there's a lot of compromise in the integrity of the Scripture today because the world doesn't use this tool. It uses alternative tools. Integrity, Titus chapter 2 verses 7 through 8 says this, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show what? Integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us actually in the original text it, it having nothing to say it actually means they have no record they have no record where you have compromised integrity amen you know spent 21 years in the army and when i made captain well, before I made captain, I was a first lieutenant, and I was an aide-de-camp to three one-star generals. And an aide-de-camp is basically I did everything. I anticipated their every need. In fact, I, uh, my generals, I knew all their ribbons, and I kept extra ribbons and, and devices for their uniforms. Anything they might need on their uniform, I had an extra one. I even kept extra, I never forget General Paul Gene Wisely, Brigadier, Brigadier General Wisely. We were at Fort Chaffee and he had to go to some event and and I would call ahead and make sure all the protocol for the general officer, the right flags with the right stars, the right, I mean everything, into the menu I arranged his travel, I did everything for these generals. I never forget we got there and he, he, at that time, was a bachelor, and he didn't have any black socks. I said, no problem, sir. I got a brand-new pair right here to get you covered. He said, man, ain't you Johnny on the spot. <laughs> but I was an aide. I was an aide to three one-star generals, and one of those generals, I'll never forget, when I first became his aide, we were talking, and he he owned a cattle ranch in Boonville, Arkansas. And I said, well, General Wisely, my father's was from Boonville. And he said, yeah. What's his name? Johnny Barham. And he said, you know, I used to date a Marcella Barham. <laughs> I said, that's my daddy's sister. <laughs> or he wanted to date her or something like that. I don't know. He wanted to date her. Maybe he didn't. But, but he said, yeah, you know, um. I said, yeah, my dad used to play pool there. He was a pool hustler. He said, yeah, I remember your dad, there were two pool halls, one on either side of the tracks, one that all the, the, the athletes and the, the wealthy folks went to, went to and then those that were on the other side of the track. He said, sometimes those boys would come over and, and try to hustle us. And he said, um, your daddy took $100 from me one time. I said, well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I went home, told Dad. I said, oh, yeah, I remember Paul Gene. I do remember playing pool with him. And so it came PT test time. You got to take the Army physical fitness training test. And right before the test, General Wisely comes to him and he says, Lieutenant, I've made, a, I made an arrangement. You have? He said, yeah, you need to beat... Colonel Stark on this PT test. Now Colonel Stark was a marathon runner. He said, "I bet him a hundred dollars that my lieutenant would beat him." I said, "Sir, you might as well go ahead and give him that hundred dollars." <laughs> but I got a text first thing this morning that General Wisely passed away. He was a good man had a lot of fun. But I pray that, that I touched his life some way. Because we'd be riding all over the state and he'd ask me questions. And I, I'd just go to preaching to him in that car. But there were times after that he said, after my tour as his aide, he said, where do you want to go? What do you want to do when you make captain? And so he sent me, to Circe to be the training officer at an infantry battalion. And there was many times, not just once, but multiple times in my military career, that I was asked to do things that were compromising to my integrity. I'll never forget one time that this superior officer came into my office and said, Got a travel voucher here for the colonel. Colonel went on a trip. He wants to get his, his uh, per diem and get his money, expenses for that trip back. And he said, uh, I need you to sign this for the colonel. So I said, okay, no problem. So I put four, and then put the colonel's name. And then I signed my name above the colonel's name. Printed the colonel's name and then put, signed my name, Marvin Barham. Captain Marvel Barber. And I took it back to him. He brought it back and said, man, this ain't going to work. What are you doing? I said, well, you asked me to sign for the colonel. So I signed for the colonel because that was the way you did it. And the colonel would do a letter of signature authorization. And that's the way he did it. And he said, no, 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 no. You don't have signature authorization. Well, then what do you want me to do? I want you to sign the colonel's name no 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 that's forgery I'm not gonna do that not gonna do that he said well I don't understand the problem I do it all the time I said then why suddenly you want me to do it if you've already compromised your integrity then you keep on doing that but don't come ask me to compromise mine and that's just one of many times that I was challenged like that. And folks, they'll test you. They'll test your integrity. See, the integrity of your scriptural understanding will be reflected in the integrity of your words and your conduct. Even if they were to falsely accuse you, it would be hard to argue with the integrity of the life you've demonstrated before others. See, and where did I get that? I got that from my father. Because I never forget my father has a brother who's an atheist, and we were traveling I don't know all the details of uh, you know my 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 memory is, you know not quite as sharp as it used to be when I was uh twenty and remembering something when I was six <laughs> you know but i was just a kid, but I do remember this part of it we were traveling or something and and we stopped my 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 parents said. There's some poke salad on the side of the road. Who likes poke salad with some scrambled eggs? All right. Who's never had poke salad? Okay, if you don't cook it right, it'll kill you. Literally. (laughs) But poke salad grows wild on the side of the road down here in the south. And so... We were gonna stop get some of that. My uncle said, Well get us get some of that poke salad. My dad said, We don't know who owns the field. He said, It doesn't matter who owns the field, it's just growing wild on the side of the road. He said, Yeah, but that's somebody's land. See the fence around it and this do not trespass sign? That's somebody's land. <laughs> he refused to get that. I'll never forget, at the end of our street one time, we lived there was a cul-de-sac, and the city had piled gravel there. And there was something, some situation where we needed, dad needed some gravel. And, and somebody said, well, let's just get some of that gravel right there. And he said, no, that belongs to the city. Well, you pay taxes, so that's your gravel. No, doesn't work that way. <laughs> integrity. What's your integrity worth? What's your integrity worth? See, Once you compromise your integrity, it's hard to rebuild it because there's no such thing as 98% integrity. Number two, motive. Go that next one up there, John. Integrity, the second one is motive. What's your motive in all that you do, all that you say? See, it's, it's funny how we're quick to assume upon other people's motives, but we're slow to challenge our own, aren't we? Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, and of, spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions. The motives, the intentions of the heart. There are several instances where we see Jesus challenge James, John, and Peter's motives. The motives of their heart. In Luke chapter 9, verse 54. It says, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. They wanted to call fire down on a people who did not want to come hear Jesus. They were offended, not on Jesus' behalf, on their behalf. Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus challenges Peter's motive and intentions. But he turned to him and said, Peter, get thee behind me, adversary. Adversary. You know what the word for uh, adversary is in Hebrew? Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. You know, he's saying your motive's in the wrong place, sir. I see the intent of your heart. See, if you make it your life to disciple others, watch this. At some point, if you make it your life to disciple someone else, at some point you'll get a James, you'll get a John, you'll get a Peter, and you'll get a Judas. You'll get one of each. But you have to choose to serve them all with the same motive. Do you understand Jesus loved Judas with the same love that he loved Peter. He didn't, he didn't half disciple Judas up until Judas betrayed him, even though he knew Judas was going to betray him long before that night. He still gave him the same level of impartation and discipleship that he gave Peter. So you got to disciple him with the same motive. It's one thing to be benevolent for selfish reason or even to simply say you have checked the block of cassette or loving kindness. But an entirely different thing to do it from the motives of Christ's selfless sacrifice with nothing to be gained, either materially, emotionally, or in your reputation. Matthew chapter 6 verse 2 tells us this. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What's your motive for what you do for Christ? See, before God gives you a ministry, hear me out. Before God will give you your ministry, He will always challenge your morals and your motives. I want God to bless my ministry. Well, show me where he's challenged your morals and your motives first. Number three. If we look in Romans 8, 28, we see the next tool you've got to have in your discipleship toolbox is purpose. See, that's why motive comes before purpose, because if God hasn't challenged your integrity, if he hasn't seen your integrity, if he hasn't challenged your motive, then you'll be serving for the wrong purpose. And so many serve in ministry for their own purpose, their own purpose. Why? Because motive is wrong. And when motive is wrong, compromise will come to integrity. If You don't have, when your motive changes, you'll compromise. And you lose sight of purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to whose purpose? His purpose. Praise God. Called according to his purpose. Called, that means summoned. That means come forth. I've commanded you to do something. When I call my sons, I expect them to say, Snap to, yes sir, what you need daddy? Called, I called you. And I don't like to have to repeat myself. <laughs> Boy, if I told you to do something, I better not have to, have to tell, it, tell you to do it twice. Called. That's what called means. Called to what? To his purpose. Well, what is his purpose? What is his purpose? What was Christ's purpose? What was God's purpose for sending Christ? Matthew 18 11. That's 18.1. 18.11 says, For he came to seek and save that which was lost. Amen? That which was lost. That was his purpose. The Son of Man came to save that which was lost. Which was lost? What was lost? The eternal relationship with the father eternal relationship right relationship with a holy God you know what was lost a family children children of the father and his purpose is to gather again the children of the father what was his purpose to redeem the eternal souls of men under right relationship with God. And so with that understanding, we then know, we know for certainty, absolute, for those who love God. What does it mean to love God? That means completely surrendered, to surrender everything to him. Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my what? Keep my commandments. How do we how do we keep your commandments, Lord? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is likened to the first. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, how do we love my neighbor as myself? For no greater love has any man than to lay his life down. It all fits. Number four. Look with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. If You walk in integrity. Your motive is right and upright before God. He'll reveal His purpose. You live and you'll be driven by the purpose of the rabbi. And you'll maintain the right attitude. Because attitude's important. Attitude determines more than altitude. (laughs) Heard that cliche a lot. What does that mean? Well, attitude's going to determine my success. Well, that's true. But it also might affect your eternity. Attitude. Well, bless God. It's just the way it is. Just tell them the truth in love. Yeah. You got the truth right. You missed the love part. I hear it in the tone of your voice. It's all in your attitude. Right? Well, that's just the way I am. That's the way God made me. No, God didn't make you a jerk. God didn't make you sarcastic with that stinking attitude. The Holy Spirit should define your attitude. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, meekness, patience, long-suffering, self-control. Against these there is no restraint. No law. Amen? Philippians 2, 14 through 17. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. But why, God? Why, why, why? Why, 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 why? Because I said so. (laughs) Grumbling, moaning. Isn't it amazing how we expect God? How many of you expect God to hear you when you pray? Do you think for some reason he suddenly doesn't hear you when you're complaining? If he hears you when you pray, he hears you when you complain. He doesn't suddenly go tone deaf. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Well, that's where we're living today, isn't it? And among whom you shine as lights in the world. Don't stop there. Look at the rest of it. Holding fast to what? The word of life. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Or labor in vain. Wow. When you moan, complain, grumble. When your attitude is horrible. It's a total contradiction to everything God's trying to do in you and your life. And you make everything God has done almost null and void and in vain. Greg, even when there, it's all around you. It's ungodliness all around you. You know what you do? You keep the attitude of Christ, right? In some days it might be hard. But what's the alternative to the attitude of Christ? Flesh. Right? Fleshly attitude. Look what he says. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, do you understand what a drink offering is? One of the best examples is... Well, let me first give you, in Jewish culture, there was a certain time coming out of the command of Isaiah to draw water from the spring of life. They would draw water from the, from the spring, right? It was a living well, a living spring, the Pool of Shalom. And they would draw water, and the men would take a, a, a vessel, and they would draw water out, and they would dance with this vessel and do a dance called the Mayam Mayam. And they would dance with it, and they would be singing and praising and shouting, and they would pass it down the line. And then it would get all the way down to the court of women and the outer court, and there would be a stone, and they would pour this water on that stone as a poor offering to God. And if the fire of God came down and consumed the, the water on the stone, then God was going to bless the harvest and they did that as an act out of the prophecy of Isaiah and it's there that Jesus declares that I am the spring of living water it's there that Jesus they bring Jesus the woman to be stoned and he sets her free we see when David just made mention to his men as Saul was pursuing him. Man, what I would give for a drink of water from that spring. And his men snuck down in the night into the camp of Saul. And they got him a cup of that water. They risked their lives to get him a cup of that water. And you know what he did with it? He poured it out. And they got mad, didn't they? Is that what they did? No, they didn't get mad. They understood what he was doing. Now what us, we would have gotten mad. We, well, that's pointless. We risk our lives to get you that water to honor you. And you just poured it out like it was nothing? No, he poured it out like it was everything. His whole point was these men risked their life. And he hum he was humbly returning giving it to the Lord that's 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 kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around in our culture because we just we just don't practice those things but a poor offering was a very very significant act of surrender and submission to God and so here's what Paul says or the scripture in Philippians He said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering unto the sacrificial offering of your faith, let my life and rejoice with you all. In other words, he's saying, let my life be poured out as an offering unto God. For you. See, sin always manifests in an attitude. Sin always manifests in an attitude. You roll your eyes, I see it. You do that, pfft, whatever. It's a, it, and what does it reveal? It reveals the motives and the intents of the heart, doesn't it? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the attitude speaks. The mouth speaks. More just the mouth, the eyes, everything else. See, your attitude is a reflection of a soul condition. You can profess your Jesus all day long, but if they don't see him in your attitude, you have preached one Jesus but showed them another. Oh, you can try to justify your alter ego Jesus all day long. All you want. But the Jesus that they walk away remembering is the one they saw in your attitude. See, attitude also reflects your soul's, it, it affects your soul's peace, doesn't it? It affects your joy, your love, and so much more. Satan can use your attitude as an open door to change your perception of God's love and faithfulness. See, he can also use it to give you a victim or a martyr mentality that will render you ineffective. Attitude. Jesus was always challenging the disciples' attitude. Number five. You notice these are building. You got ahead of me there. Well, you see number six as well <laughs> integrity, motive, purpose, attitude. And the, fifth, or the next one is conviction. Don't compromise your convictions. You don't have this one in your toolbox. You're just following a dead religious practice, tradition, and ordinances, and, and it's just you, you've lost everything. You've got to have this one in your toolbox. And let me tell you, we live in a day where conviction's got a bad rap. Conviction comes, I love what my father used to say all the time, conviction comes before you sin, condemnation comes after. When I was a youth pastor, I used to tell him all the time, don't wait to cry out, oh Lord, help us with this temptation. Don't wait till after you're getting out of the back seat of the car put putting your clothes back on. Cry out to him before you get back there, before you even got in the car without a chaperone. In fact, before you should even be alone together. Let your conviction be strong. Let you guard the integrity of your relationship. Your integrity of your honor to God and Christ. So that you won't even be alone. Much less have to deal with temptation. You know the best way to beat temptation? Don't be there. Just don't be there. Don't show up to the meeting. Be late. Oh, well, I guess I missed the appointment with temptation. It's the best way to beat it. Run the other way like Joseph. If it means give up your cloak, so be it. Conviction. You know what conviction does? It guards your integrity. It is like the it's it's the it's the guard. It guards your integrity. You know what conviction does? It reveals your motives. You know what else it does? It helps you find your purpose. When you lose conviction, you'll lose your purpose. And it also, conviction would define your attitude. And it won't be popular to the rest of the world. Because the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is eternal life to those who are been saved. 1 John 1.6 If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. If you compromise your conviction, you sear your conscience. And the more you compromise your conviction, the harder you make your conscience. Acts twenty four sixteen. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I always take pains. You know what? I go to great lengths. I do all due diligence to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. You know what that means? I live by my convictions. therefore, we always quote that scripture, "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. right? Sounds good, but what the rest of it says, what's the rest of it say? rest of it says, for those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Do you know what that means? That means you live by conviction, because conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation is the devil telling you, you failed. Conviction is telling you, don't go there. Condemnation is telling you, you failed. Conviction is David's Walking for the first time by that window and going, whoa, the Bathsheba. <laughs> Holy Bathsheba. And the Holy Spirit said, don't go there. Don't go there. Nip it in the bud. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. See, the more you justify your sin, the more you justify your conduct, your attitude, your compromise, the more you sear your conscience. And you kick conviction to the curb. Live by conviction. To be upright before God. See, this world would seek to either condemn you or rob you of your righteous consciousness. It's another sermon my dad used to have: righteous consciousness. A lot of people, they, a lot of Christians. The reason they fall prey to temptation is because they lose conscious awareness of who they are in Christ and what Christ did for you. But if you are always consciously aware of the price of this cross right here, that was what was paid for you, that you were bought for and paid with a price, then you are consciously aware when temptation comes that this, I do not live this life. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives within me. You are consciously aware that your Christianity isn't just something you can shove back to your subconscious and pull it out and drag out some Jesus when you got a crisis. Know that it's at the forefront of your every thought. This is what it meant when David said, Lord, I will haggah your law day and night, I will meditate. He didn't mean "Um, meditate, I had a spiritual lobotomy. And the only thing up there is the law of God. Always seeking to please God. With my every thought, my every motive, my every word, my every action, my every attitude. To guard my integrity, to live by the conviction of the law of God. And to say, well, we don't live under the law. You know what that is? That's to say, I don't live by any conviction. I serve a hippie Jesus. No. She said, I didn't do, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. You know what that meant? It meant what God said to Moses, I want a people where I write my law upon their foreheads and upon the doorpost of their heart. Conviction. You can't live this life without it. This world again would seek to rob you of your righteous consciousness. The slightest compromise leads to failure. And you know, it's a slow fade to moral failure. Little compromise, little leaven, slowly leavens the whole lump. See, true conviction is never convenient in the eyes of the world. In all things, that's why he says, in all things, consider the ways of the Lord. What does it mean, consider the ways of the Lord? It means more than, well, what would Jesus do? No, it means live who he is. Live his, live his character. Live his standard. Um, Abby was applying for a job the other day. And um, she called and asked me for some advice, and I said one of the things I advised her was if they ask you any questions about morality or ethics or integrity or character, do not hold back on sharing your convictions. Because what companies, and we do, you know, I've sat in many a job panels for the military. And we ask, we always throw, we throw questions in there about competency. We want to make sure they're competent. Because a lot of people will put, they've got all this experience in this job on their resume. And then you ask them a question about it and they don't have a clue. They lied. Well, right there, guess what you just saw? Integrity. Or lack thereof. Where it stands. Well, you said you got all this experience with this. But you don't even know what, you know, a Windows server is. You never, you know, whatever. But we'd always throw a question in there about how they interact with other people. Like, have you ever been in a situation where you had to deal with some conflict, either with an employee or something like that? How did you handle that conflict? All right, so what do we want to see? We want to see how they handle how they deal with people. But one question we always throw in there is if you had a situation or have you ever had a situation where you saw something was wrong, unethical, immoral, what did you do about it? You know what a lot of the answers are we get? Well, it ain't none of my business. I just stay to my business, do what I'm told. I just, you know... Give what I'm getting paid to do. Oh, well, you're going to be a great asset in the workplace, aren't you? Right? Look, they. What employer doesn't want somebody who has a high standard of integrity and morality? Don't be afraid. But what we do as Christians, we get in there and we want to try to just take our convictions and uh, really just kind of shove those under the rug. Because they don't want to hear that. Yeah, they do. Most employers, well, it depends on what you're applying for. If you're applying to help, you know, be uh, an assistant drug dealer, then it might not matter. But <laughs> if you're applying for a job, I mean, don't be afraid to share your convictions. Don't be afraid. Number six. Trust. Y'all saw it earlier. (laughs) Trust. Notice. Integrity. Motive. Purpose. Attitude. Conviction. And trust. What's that spell? Impact. If you want to make an impact, these are tools you need in your toolbox. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord. With all your heart. I mean, what is a disciple that doesn't have integrity, doesn't have conviction, doesn't have purpose, doesn't have trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge Him. Psalms 56, 3 through 4. I love this one. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. And I shall not be afraid, for what can flesh do to me? Never give up on Jesus. He'll never give up on you. Where else will you turn for this kind of hope and love for eternal promise? You see, to make the greater impact requires a deeper level of trust. Amen? You want to make a bigger impact for God, you're going to have to trust Him a little deeper. Brother David, Brother Bentley was telling us a couple Sundays ago when he went to, where was it? Pakistan? Pakistan. When there were threats on his life and he had to have armed machine gun, you know, guards armed with machine guns on either side of him everywhere he went. Folks, to make that, but thousands of, of, of Muslims and stuff coming to Christ while he preached the gospel standing there on a stage in Pakistan. Folks, that's a deeper level of trust. You want a greater impact? It's going to require a deeper level of trust. Deeper level of trust. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer states this. The will of God to which the law gives expression is that men should defeat their enemies by loving them. Let me read that again. The will of God to which the law gives expression is that men should defeat their enemies by loving them. See, as a disciple of Rabbi Yeshua Meshiach, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, if you hold fast to your integrity in Him, John, put that back up there, impact. If you hold fast to your integrity in Him, surrender your heart's motives to His Lordship in all things. Set your life's goal. On saving souls for his kingdom as your greatest purpose, your divine purpose. Embrace the spirit of Christ Jesus in his attitude, his demeanor. Submit to his righteousness and trust that he is faithful to keep that which you have entrusted into his faithful hands. Then you will bear the fruit of his glory in your life for others to see you'll make an impact that will last for generations to come long after you're gone and listen anyone can learn theology I can set you down and I can teach you Hebrew I can teach you how to dig around in the Bible and and do a uh, Uh, studies and and dig into the etymology of things and build Hebraic concepts and and reveal idiomatic content and context of Scripture. and, and, And we could talk all kinds of theology. Anyone can learn theology. But it is a different thing to build the character of Christ in another. See, Jesus, if you look, he didn't just come teach them theology. He didn't just come teach them religious ordinance, doctrine. He built them into something. He molded and shaped them. And These are the tools he used. These are the tools he used that he demonstrated first in his, in his self. See, did he not say You've seen me. You've seen the Father. What did he mean? That's the Father. That's the Father. That's his character. That's his nature. See, I've learned my greatest inheritance that I gained from my Father is the love for and the pursuit of God. And if I could pass that on to my children, and they take and they add on to that, they build that, they take that even deeper and stronger. They have even a stronger love and pursuit of God. And then they pass that on to their children, and they pass that on to their children. Oh, what will a generation be that loves God, pursues Him greater than we have? Anyone can learn theology. It's a different thing to build character. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. Tori, if you'll come. Hallelujah. I'm asking you today what tools are you giving to others? What do you have in your discipleship toolbox? God's given you all these tools. You might say, well, I don't have, I'm not equipped. Yes, you are. He's given you those tools. He's given you those tools. I've just told you how to use them, how to apply them. You can make an impact. Come on, will if you will, just, just close your eyes, bow your heads with me this morning. Maybe here this morning, you say, Pastor, I've compromised my integrity or my conviction. Maybe my attitude hasn't always been what it should be. Folks, we all stumble, and we all fall, we've all failed. Lord knows, there's times I've had to repent to people. Repent to sons or whoever because my attitude wasn't right we're always fighting against this, this fleshly nature but if that's you let me just remind you that repentance is just one step away it's not a mile it's not miles from you restoration is not far off it's one step away It's just simply to say, forgive me, Lord. And immediately, immediately he can restore your integrity. No one else can. No one else can, only Christ. Only he can help change and put a right spirit. That's what David prayed. David said, Lord, renew a right spirit within me. He can do it. Maybe you're here this morning. And maybe there's there's been compromise. Maybe you you need to tell the Lord, Lord, let me set it right. Lord, I cheapen the tools in my toolbox. Lord, I want your tools.